this is the moment, right? That it's not as if democracy is some side issue in the context of a global health crisis. It's front and center because a lot of us want to hold our leaders accountable. We want to reward those who have done well and we want to hold accountable those who have not, who have mismanaged the crisis. Welcome to Transatlantically Thinking, a series by the International Republican Institute's Transatlantic Strategic Division, in which we provide you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. My name is Thibaut Mezerg, and I will be your host once again for this episode, dedicated to the political, social, and diplomatic consequences of COVID-19 in the transatlantic space. This is a bit of a special episode for those of you who followed our first podcast. The format usually gets me to talk with one special guest around a set range of topics. But uh, like others, I guess we've had to uh, adapt to circumstances. So this time we are going to speak with four thought leaders from both sides of the pond, asking them about how they see the pandemic affecting their field of study and action. These thoughts were gathered during one of our online seminars organized for a group of young MPs we have been working with for quite some time. And to be honest, the contents were so interesting that we thought it would be a pity not to share it with you all, uh, you who have chosen to listen to this podcast. Today, we are going to hear from U.S. Republican pollster Christian Soltis Anderson about the impact of the virus on American politics, from British author David Goodhart about the sociological impact on the crisis and how it is going to affect British politics, with French civil servant and thinker Nicolas Tenzer about the diplomatic consequences of the virus, and finally with IRI President Dan Twining about what this all means for democracy around the world. But let's start right here, right now, uh, with our first guest. Kristen Soltis-Anderson is a U.S. Republican pollster and uh, commentator. She appears regularly on TV shows on CNN, HBO, MSNBC, and Fox News. And she also hosts What Are the Odds, a weekly polling analysis show on Fox Nation. She also wrote a fantastic book, uh, which I really recommend, The Selfie Vote, about how millennials are changing America and what Republicans can do to keep up with that change. Kristen, obviously, from a U.S. politics perspective, the coronavirus comes at a crucial time in the nation's politics with presidential and congressional elections looming in November. How did COVID-19 affect President Trump's ratings and will they have an incidence on his re-election bid? So one thing that we know is that the president's job approval is remarkably stable. Um, whether we're talking about impeachment, the Mueller report, there have been a number of things that commentators in the U.S. have said, oh, this is the thing that's going to change the American political landscape. And none of them had, uh, that the president's job approval had sat extremely stable, that voters generally gave our president slightly more credit for the economy than for other things. Um, and we see that, that that sort of return to normal is what we're facing here in the U.S., that briefly during March, at the beginning of this crisis, some folks were giving President Trump slightly more credit. Um, There's a bit of a rally around your leader effect, um, but that has seemed to subside. And now we are seeing across swing states in the U.S., as well as in national polls, Joe Biden with a lead of around four to eight points um, across critical areas. Now, that does not mean the election is decided. At this point, I think it's still too soon to, set, to tell, and we still don't necessarily know 
what the differences are between who will and won't turn out. So overall, something that I think won't change and that undergirds all of this is that the president's job approval is very stable, that his job approval on the economy specifically tends to be higher than his overall job approval. And what's fascinating is that people seem to be holding the president responsible for the handling of COVID. Um, and they also view the economy as getting bad, but they don't hold Donald Trump responsible for the economy getting bad. That in effect, the reason why the economy has gotten bad is because of measures that are largely popular, people overwhelmingly believing that these social distancing measures are needed. And so while typically political scientists would look at something like the state of the economy to tell us, is the president going to get reelected or not? That becomes trickier to work with as a variable in understanding if President Trump will be reelected and what 2020 will look like once we get to the November elections, because at the moment, while people feel very badly about the economy, they're not yet transferring that sentiment onto uh, their leaders. Now, when we ask folks, who would you trust more to handle either the public response to the coronavirus or the economic recovery? Again, we find voters are fairly divided, but when the conversation is around the health response, that's where Trump does a bit worse compared to Biden, where on the question of the economic recovery, as I mentioned, he still retains that slight advantage. The economy remains a strong issue for him, even given the tens of millions of Americans who have had to file for unemployment benefits over just the last few weeks. So now I want to think a little bit longer term about some of the factors that are underlying our overall political views um, and the way we will have our discussion and uh, as we head toward November. And I think one major thing that's going to change is how we discuss inequality. Um, in our country today, you know, inequality was a very big topic of conversation in the Democratic primary. Joe Biden winning coming out of that sort of represented the more moderate-ish wing of the Democratic Party being victorious. But I certainly think the way we talk about inequality and the way we talk about workers in lower income jobs and service jobs and blue collar jobs is going to change in a big way as a result of this crisis, in part because they are so acutely feeling many of the effects of this virus. It is true that COVID-19 is something that can affect everyone, no matter what your station in life, no matter if you are the prime minister of a country or, or uh, in other, some other prominent role. Um, and what we're seeing in our echelon data um, is that this is particularly having a big impact on those, as you might expect, who have lost a job, who have had hours cut, and that, that is disproportionately being felt by those in lower income brackets and, and certain industries. Um, we find that in the U.S., among those who have lost a job or had hours cut, over half think that they have less than three months uh, of savings to cover household living expenses. And while we have seen in the short term here in the U.S., things like the unemployment insurance program sort of being beefed up, there will be a serious debate about winding that down. We saw this with the winding down of unemployment insurance extensions after the Great Recession. We will see it again here. Um, and there's going to be a lot of effort to paint either Democrats as hyping this problem to keep the economy shut down for too long, therefore placing the hardship being faced by these lower income workers squarely on Democrats' shoulders. And I think for Republicans, it will be said that they were the ones pinching pennies, not interested in extending necessary unemployment insurance programs. A month or two from now, as we begin to you know, head into the summer and questions about renewing some of these programs come up. Speaking of inequality, which has become one of the items of debate, not only inside the Democratic Party, but also between Republicans and Democrats, how do you see the divide this time 
inside the Republican Party and maybe also between Republicans and Democrats evolving as a result of COVID-19? I do think we're going to see a divide in the Republican Party that, that grows as we enter into these conversations about how much more money will the government spend on whether it's social insurance programs or what have you. Um, already, you know, you'll see that friction between, well, has the, has the White House and Mitch McConnell, the Senate, have they come to an agreement on something? Because while Democrats, I, I think, would have no hesitation to sort of open up the taps of government spending to do whatever uh, they think is necessary, not just to tackle the crisis, but to also implement other things that are part of their vision for how they would like uh, public policy to work. You know, they're sort of, let's do everything uh, everything with COVID-19 and all these other things we want. For Republicans, there is, I think, this 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 debate that, you know, goes back to pre-Trump about, you know, when it came to coming out of the financial crisis. Were Republicans too eager to cut taxes for the wealthy, bail out big banks, but too stingy when it came to spending money on the sorts of things that would have helped middle and lower class Americans. And so on the one hand, you have, I guess what I would call maybe the Paul Ryan, you know, Romney era Republican view of we need fiscal restraint. We need to make sure that that big business is up and running, um, that that will effectively lift the whole economy. Um, the Trump era either was caused by or has, you know, driven more conversation around Republicans need to become the party of the working class, which means mm -hmm. We need to not be so worried about, are we spending too much money? We're already in so much debt. Who cares at this point? You're cutting taxes for the big businesses. You're bailing out the big businesses, but these little businesses can't get a loan. Are you kidding me? So you're seeing within the Republican Party, there is that divide. And I think that is only going to get stretched even further. As to your question about gender, um, you know, a lot of that is also, in some cases, it's hard to tease out what is being driven by gender and what is being driven by party, since in any of my crosstabs, mm -hmm. I know my female crosstab is going to be more democratic, and we know partisanship is just driving everything. Partisanship, mm -hmm. if you said that strawberry ice cream was Republican and chocolate ice cream was Democrats, mm -hmm. like there are people whose preferences in ice cream would change overnight. It's that pervasive. Mm -hmm. um, so it's that's a great question. Unfortunately, I don't have any slides in front of me. Um, but I do think that, as I mentioned, questions around things like paid family leave, to the extent that women working in the home are finding mm -hmm. that they are now bearing a greater burden of they have to take care of their families, they're having to educate their children while their children aren't in schools, to the extent that there are inequalities that are now being exacerbated about that divide between domestic and outside the home labor, that'll be a part of our, our gender conversation, I think, heading toward November. Thank you very much, Kristen. Now, let's cross the Atlantic and move on to our next guest, David Goodhart. You may remember David from the last two episodes of this podcast. He's a journalist and commentator, author of the much-discussed and very influential Road to Somewhere, which explains the current divides over Brexit, but also those that we've seen at work in much of Europe and the United States, by a new social-cultural cleavage between somewheres and anywheres. Uh, David, how do you see these divides being affected by the COVID virus inside British society? I mean, when it comes to the sort of bigger social and demographic questions, I mean, I think we're we're kind of all guilty pretty much of what we might call coronavirus confirmation bias. I mean, all, almost everybody I read or listen to seems to be seeing in the crisis what they want to see. Um, so, and I'm probably guilty of that as well. So um, do bear that in mind in relation to what I'm about to say. I mean, I would, I would say, just as a sort of headline, big picture point, it seems to me pretty obvious that at least in, in the UK and Europe, 
possibly less so in the US, that the, the kind of political, social political trends are going to favor conservatives and greens. In, in some ways, conservatives will emerge more strongly from this crisis than other political currents, but with a pretty clear instruction to follow kinds of policies that we've normally associated with the left or with liberals, you know, strengthening the public realm, you know, spending more on care and welfare and, and so on. But having said that, I mean, I think this will also reinforce certain things that we do more normally associate with conservatives, the reinforcement of the national. I mean, this has been, you know, the hour of the nation state, uh, obviously, and it has been, I mean, I think it's too strong to talk about deglobalization, but there's certainly been knocking some of the froth off liberal globalism, if you like, more, more caveats to the kinds of the structures of globalization that we had seen them. But again, I mean, but this, to the extent this is true, I think it's just reinforcing a, a, a trend that was already there prior to the crisis. It's going to give that trend an extra shove, you know, because after all, what, we haven't seen a new global trade agreement since, what, 1993 or something? Last year, world trade was already falling. We've already got the, U we already had the US-China trade dispute. People were already thinking about bringing back the supply chain, as it were, certainly in the US, and perhaps to some extent in Europe too. And obviously the, the vulnerabilities of, of liberal globalism, the vulnerabilities of hyperconnectivity that the crisis has revealed will, I think, yeah, it'll, it'll strengthen to some degree economic nationalism, but of a sensible kind. Now, a lot of things have been said about how this crisis was going to be good for experts or for populists, actually. Uh, where do you stand on this? Does the crisis signal a return to trust of the population in experts and the demise of populism, or actually the contrary? Certainly, in the early stages of the crisis, there was a lot of the um, so that you know those damn populists can shut up now about how they don't trust experts. You know, as, as we were all sort of sitting around reading, even Boris's, Boris Johnson's government was following the science, and the epidemiologists were were um, apparently the new uh, the new gods which of course is a complete misreading i think of what as it were the legitimate populist complaint about experts was never about bloody scientists or engineers or you know people that might remove your brain tumor i mean you know nigel farage is not opposed to someone you know taking out um removing a cancerous growth what what he and i think perfectly legitimately lots of people who are wary in some ways about the direction our societies have been moving in is kind of, you know, economists and political scientists going on the TV or the radio and talking their political book and quoting a few figures and, and being described as neutral, objective experts, which obviously they are not. Thanks a lot, David. And for those of our listeners who are not aware, I would like to let you know, and for those of you who know already, I would like to remind you that David Goodhart's new book, Head, Hand, Heart, will be out in September. And its thesis about the need to rethink the way in which we distribute status and work in Western societies promises to be both intellectually provocative and very linked to uh, the debates we are having today, at least in Europe, about the social status of these famous essential workers that have kept our countries together during the lockdowns. Now, moving on from internal to a more international perspective, let me introduce you to Nicola Tenzer. 
Nicolas is a, a French senior civil servant and thinker, president of the think tank CERAP, the Center for Study and Reflection for Political Action. He's also the author of numerous books on politics, political philosophy, and international relations. He also teaches at Sciences Po in Paris, and uh, from time to time he gives us also a hand when we train young and emerging leaders in Europe. Nicola, we've heard many narratives about how the world is going to be fundamentally changed for better or sometimes for worse uh, by the virus. Now, I, I don't necessarily want to discuss the positives and the negatives of these changes, but uh, rather focus on this sort of deterministic uh, uh, point of view or, or idea that, that, that things are now set on a specific course that they, they are not going to leave. Uh, do you see COVID-19 really as that game changer? And, and what are the lessons you think we should draw for this crisis in the transatlantic space? I think that's the first thing that I want just to insist on, just to be a little bit, I mean, cautious, skeptical, when you are reading this kind of new narratives, even by, by very senior people, who are considering that the fate of the world is already written. You had a French philosopher uh, who was Raymond Aron, you know, in the, in the, in the beginning of the 20th, uh, the middle of the 20th century, who was uh, just saying that we have really to take care not to be determinist. History is not written. And there is a lot of margins of maneuver that we have to explore. I mean, the, the, the leaders of the world have to explore right now. And I will, of course, say a little bit later how they have to do that. First of all, I think there is something that we have really to do also is uh, when it comes to decision-making process to draw the lessons of what we did badly. First of all, let me very clear, let me very clear on that. I think that the uh, COVID-19 pandemic is absolutely not what Taleb uh, used to call a black swan. It's not a black swan at all. I mean, the crisis was completely predictable. And in fact, it was predicted. Of course, we may have some questions about when, about how, uh, about the very concrete, I mean, dimensions of the crisis. But in fact, it's not something that must have us surprised. And if you read, for instance, uh, the report uh, made by the National Intelligence Council of the US in 2004, in 2008, in 2017, just before Trump has been inaugurated, they were warning about the risk of this kind of pandemic maybe coming from China. If we see in France, the white books on defense and security of 2008, 2012, and also the general review of defense and security uh, made by a very good friend, Arnaud Dangean, who is a French uh, MP from uh, Les Républicains in 2017 or so in France. Uh, one chapter of his report was about pandemic. And I think what we have really to take into account, because there was a lot of warnings of other kinds about, especially, I mean, uh, Russia, about China, etc., is why the leaders of the free world whatever, I mean, their, uh, of course, uh, political uh, affiliations, they have not perceived everything that has been announced as credible, 
and they do not have taken beforehand the appropriate measures. And I think that's a real question. I am not, I won't elaborate, I mean, very, you know, in depth on, on, on this. Uh, why all the warnings by the experts and also official reports do not pour into the circle of the decision makers. I think that's one of the questions that we must have. And maybe if there is a good dimension of this pandemic, is that maybe the world leader will pay probably, and I think they have to, more attention to what comes next. I think that's one of the lessons that I want to, 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 to have. Then I think there is a second lesson of this, of this crisis. We must stop being naive about multilateralism, about international organizations, and about the true willingness of many powers to cooperate in order to build a better world. When it comes to the international organization especially, since a long time, a lot of experts have warned about the fact that China especially was trying, and in fact up to a certain point succeeding, in controlling a lot of international organizations. Not only WHO, but also FAO, and also some of the council and technical organizations of the UN system. No one was really paying attention. That was something that we were discussing uh, within diplomatic circles. No one was paying attention. No one else was paying attention to the possible consequences of that. No, we are really observing, I mean in real time, what the consequences of that. And no, I think that it means that both the US and the European countries and Japan and Australia, I mean most of the world democracies, they have really, if they want to be effective, they have to reinvest the international organizations and not make those organizations ruled by, let's say, rogue powers like China or up to a certain point Russia even if Russia is maneuvering a different way with the international organizations. It means that basically international organizations are the place in which influences are developing. And we have to have a counter-influence strategy. I think that's something which is absolutely vital. If we want to be very serious on our basic principles, I mean, be liberal principles of what we call good practices, we have to reinvest really the international organization. And when it comes to the, the, what we call multilateralism, many people, and I wrote many pieces of that, saying, well, we have to, to, be, to give away to multilateralism. Uh, we have to, to have, of course, China, Russia, all the countries involved, because there is only a kind of solidarity uh, amongst the different nations that could save the situation right now. I say, okay. But in fact, what we are witnessing is that you have some country, and not only China and Russia, really trying to sabotage those international organizations and the very wealth of multilateralism. Beyond the question of uh, multilateralism, there have been many talks about the end of uh, globalization. And in France, you even hear in some circles uh, talks of uh, la démondialisation, uh, deglobalization. I mean, obviously, the French had to have a, a specific name for this. Is it really the end of the world economy as we know it? First of all, we are not entering 
a deglobalized area. I think the idea is that we will witness uh, in the coming uh, years a kind of uh, deglobalization of the world. I think that's an idea which is completely untrue. It's untrue because there is a demand for the customers of globalizations. If you want to buy affordable products, if you want to go uh, to, to, to visit friends, if you want to, go to do studies, if you want to visit new countries, you will be necessarily opting for a more globalized world. And I think that the tendency of globalizations is a tendency that is certainly uh, will not stop with the COVID-19 pandemic. And we will need more solidarity also, which is a true part of the, of, the, of the story also. And we will need certainly, of course, to also to, to, to monitor what happened in other parts of the world. For instance, for, you, for us, European countries, what happened in the Middle East, what happened in Africa, uh, has a direct impact on what we are and our economy, our societies, etc. So we will not turn to a kind of deglobalized world. But, but... A lot of people were talking about the risk coming from the control by China, but I would add also Russia, uh, when it comes especially to energy sources and partly uh, raw materials, the control of absolutely needed resources or technologies. And in fact, we will have certainly to be less dependent from China for instance, when it comes to the questions of uh, pharmaceutical products, but also when it comes to 5G, and I think that 5G is actually uh, one of the uh, most important issues that we have right now, uh, you know, in Europe. When it comes also to, to some uh, resources and technology recruits, and we will have certainly to pay more attention and probably to create some limitations for the Chinese investment in European companies. Thank you very much, Nicola. And this discussion about multilateralism actually makes a perfect transition to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on democracy, which, as you know, is at the heart of what we do at IRI. To do that, I am joined by Dan Twining, who is the president of the International Republican Institute since 2017. Prior to that, Dan worked as uh, director of the Asia Program and the German Marshall Fund of the United States, and he also served, among other things, as foreign policy advisor to the late U.S. Senator John McCain. Dan, I'd like to get back to the early murmurs that we have heard at the beginning of the crisis. There were discussions about deglobalization, a new multilateralism, which uh, Nicola has just talked about, but there are also talks of a methodological triumph uh, for authoritarianism or authoritarian powers over democracies in dealing with a health crisis uh, uh, like the, that of coronavirus. Today, of course, the, the, the picture is much more contrasted. And with insight and, and, and hindsight, how do you see COVID's impact on the state of democracy in the world? Thank you. It's a great question. I mean, I think in the near term, it puts so much stress on democracy and democratic systems, and we're already seeing that. But I think in the medium and longer term, it may be more where you left it, which is that actually it's a chance to put some real pressure on authoritarians from their own citizens who are dissatisfied by their performance, dissatisfied by the suppression of free information, dissatisfied by, in a place like Russia, just the extent of corruption and kleptocracy 
that have lined the oligarchs pockets instead of say going into public health infrastructure. So I think the verdict on this is not yet out. We all rushed to judgment in the first weeks of this and said, oh, it's a disaster for democracy. It's a big win for the authoritarians. I don't actually think that judgment is going to necessarily prevail. I think you will see some strong men really coming under a lot more pressure here. You know, I also think that you, you mentioned some of the apps. I mean, the debate about surveillance will change, including in democratic societies. I think all of our job is to make sure that that, you know, that health surveillance infrastructure that comes into place around uh, tracking and tracing health cases, that that does not take an authoritarian turn, that we can show that democracies can use technology to track and trace, to advance public health, to monitor citizens in ways that are not politically repressive, in ways that do not uh, steal their information for other political purposes or lead to political retaliation. That's gonna be a big job for all of us um, to help our governments navigate those tech issues. Now then, one last question for this episode, and let me widen a little bit our debate here. We talked before about experts, but beyond COVID and the health crisis, there seems to be a lot of politics going on and driving government's response, along with science and economics, of course. How do you analyze the global political dimension of this crisis? The struggle underway in the world is fundamentally, I think, a political one. Of course, there's a global health pandemic. Of course, we all are acutely focused on the medical and health situations in our countries. But fundamentally, politics is what's being stress tested by this pandemic as much as health infrastructure is being stress tested. And what's so interesting is that you might think that a health crisis in some ways would be apolitical. Uh, of course, it's actually intensely political. And of course, it's intensely political in democracies because citizens correctly want their leaders to be accountable and responsive, to be competent, to deliver for them. The first role of a leader, of course, in a democracy is to keep his or her people safe. So there is that set of pressures. But frankly, I think a lot of us have been maybe just a little surprised, maybe not too surprised, by the fact that authoritarians have moved so aggressively to put politics front and center in this global health and humanitarian crisis. You have seen several varieties of this. You have seen strong men, the occasional strong woman, but really they're mainly strong men in countries in wider Europe, in Southeast Asia, in Africa. You have seen them deploy emergency decrees, emergency powers in ways that look less like they are focused on the health and humanitarian impacts and much more like they are focused on persecuting political opponents. Um, Ilham Aliyev in Azerbaijan put it pretty well when he said, we see the opposition as a health threat that we need to inoculate against, the political opposition, right? You're seeing varieties of that in various countries in the world, leaders really cracking down. Uh, you're also seeing great power authoritarians in Russia and China, using different tools and techniques, really weaponize the information around the pandemic, weaponize misinformation and disinformation in an attempt, a direct attempt to weaken and assault the democracies. Now, this takes different forms. With the Chinese, as many of you in Europe have seen, uh, they come bearing gifts, but they then demand tribute 
in the form of statements of Chinese superiority, of the genius of the Chinese Communist Party. They actually are asking European leaders to regurgitate Chinese Communist Party propaganda for the crowd back home, which also shows us something interesting. One, great power authoritarians are working to build out spheres of influence that directly want to weaken the West, to weaken the transatlantic alliance and our solidarity and our systems, but they also want to extract propaganda value from our difficulties in order to try to shore up one-party rule at home. So this is quite interesting, the fusion of domestic and foreign policy, in a way, frankly, that Americans, uh, and I think Europeans and open societies, have trouble understanding. So what do we need to do here? First, if there was ever a reminder that we need free media and judicial oversight and parliamentary oversight and holding executives accountable and ensuring that citizens have a voice not only in choosing leaders, but in choosing new leaders if their existing ones are not passing this set of stress tests, this is the moment, right? That it's not as if democracy is some side issue in the context of a global health crisis, it's front and center, because a lot of us want to hold our leaders accountable. We want to reward those who have done well, and we want to hold accountable those who have not, who have mismanaged the crisis. We want our institutions to function. Frankly, uh, you know, I think so many of us who live in democracies are quite lucky that we don't live in one-man systems, where the bad decisions of one man or one woman put the entire country at risk. We are lucky to have institutions, to have experts, to have credible bureaucracies, including health systems. So that's one. Two, I think we also are lucky to have governments that aren't all centered necessarily at the top in the capital. That certainly in the US experience, we've had excellent mayors, excellent governors, state legislatures, various state level officials and city level officials playing real leadership roles here. Of course, this is kind of the converse of what you had in China, where when the pandemic was in its very early inception, and those local officials in Wuhan wanted to ring the alarm bell. They wanted to sound the alarm for the rest of China and ultimately for the world that this thing was coming. And they were repressed and suppressed by their authorities, including in the central government. So devolved governance is so valuable in this period. Thank you very much, Dan. And so on this decentralizing note, uh, we are going to end this podcast here. Thanks a lot for listening to Transatlantically Thinking, the podcast that provides you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. Uh, we will be back soon. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show and of course, talk to your friends and colleagues about it. We love it when we get more listeners. Until the next show then, happy deconfinement.